Today we're getting close to the end of our series 7 where we've been looking at the churches of Revelation and today we're approaching the sixth church which is the church of Philadelphia. And of all of the seven churches, Philadelphia seemed to be the one that we would want to model ourselves out after the most. It seems if, if you had to rank them you know, best to worst, Philadelphia is probably number one there. So let's see what we can look and, at and learn from them. And here's what John writes to them in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, it's verses 7 through 13. The words, uh, verses will be on the screen as well. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep, from you, from, keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're going to unpack some of that here in just a moment, but, but a little background information on the church of Philadelphia, or just that city. Philadelphia, it was named after Attalus II, who was the king of Pergamum. And he had a great love for his brother Eumenes. And that name Philadelphia, you probably know, means brotherly love. That's why you know, we talk about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, as being the city of brotherly love. By the way, if you are a sports fan, you know that Philadelphia fans are like the most ruthless fans in all of sports. So not a lot of brotherly love there. But, but that's what that city, name of the city means. But it's important to understand the purpose of, of this city. Atlas founded this city in this, in this spot where it's at to be a missionary outpost to uncivilized regions that were beyond the city of Lydia to show them the splendor and the glory of Greece. And they succeeded so well that by AD 19, the Lydian tongue that was native to that area had been replaced by the widespread usage of the Greek language. Imagine that for just a moment. Think about that in, the, in our culture, in our context. Think about a, a, a group of people being so inviting to other communities, ingratiating themselves so well that they come in and they, they talk about their culture and they, they do all of these things. And eventually you begin to speak their language instead of your own language. Now, there's a whole lot of things that are said about other languages in our country. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a proponent of most any of those. But can you imagine somebody in, in our day and age, a group of people coming in that speaks something other than English. And that becoming the primary language in our country. I mean, it just it seems unfathomable, but that's the kind of people that lived here. And, and it doesn't seem to indicate, at least history and, and uh, the scriptures, don't seem to indicate that these were people that just took over by, by means of power and dictatorship. These were people who ingratiated themselves to the community, and the people loved them so much that they just kind of picked up their habits. That says a lot for a group of people, doesn't it? 
God's desire for his people has always been to, to use them as, as a witness, to be a city on a hill, a, a people uniquely loved by God. I mean, it goes all the way back through the Old Testament. God led Abraham to the land of Israel, a land that was at the crossroads of the world because God's plan was for all nations to be blessed through, through the Jews. And, and for us in the church today, it's the same thing. We realize that God's missionary plan remains the same. He plans for the church to be a light of the world, a city on a hill. In fact, in 1 Peter uh, Peter writes, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, be- a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That's God's plan for the church. That's God's plan for us. And I think far too many Christians think God's plan is just that God will bless them and so that they're happy and they're, they're well off and they're successful. And I think I, I say that because you look at how we pray. I mean, that's the stuff that we pray for, right? We often pray for that. The, the prayer of Jabez, you might remember that from 15, 20 years ago. It was a big fad. Um, it was this idea of praying, oh, oh God, would you enlarge my territory and let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I'll be free from pain. And most Christians, we're pretty good at praying that, aren't we? We love to pray for blessing and, and freedom from pain. In fact, if we journaled our prayers and we were to go back and kind of count how many times we prayed for those kind of things, we would probably find that those were the things at the top of the list. But how many of us are willing to pray for God to use us no matter the cost, no matter the place? Are we willing to pray that kind of prayer as often as we're willing to pray for God to bless us and keep us free from pain and hurt and all of those other things? And I'm not saying those are bad prayers. I'm just saying, I think there's something else that God might be calling us to. The, the city of Philadelphia had succeeded in its missionary endeavors to, to convert uh, a Lydian culture to adopting the Greek lifestyle. But God comes to this missionary city and he calls the church to do the same thing. To be a missionary people who, who model their com- to their community the love uh, of God in such a way that others are drawn to believe the gospel and to turn their lives over to following the one true God. And as Jesus comes to these Christians, we, we see how he presents himself to them. Verse 7, he says, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. These early Christians would have identified only one person as holy and true. They're God. And so Jesus speaks to this church and he reminds them of his deity. He reminds them that, that he gives the message as a supreme authority in their lives. That he is, he is the, the supreme court in this instance. He writes as the one who holds the key of David. This reference to David would remind these Christians that, that he is the Messiah. He's, he's the, the righteous branch who springs from, from the line of David. Jesus would be the king of the Jews. That, and this would remind him of that. In Isaiah 22, we find a story of a corrupt leader uh, of the Jews, who, and he's being replaced by an honorable man named Eliakim. And it says in that passage, it says, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. And so this idea of the key of David is tied to the opening and closing of doors. Jesus comes as, as the one who is supremely in charge of those openings and those closings. And so then we continue on and, and to see what Jesus says in verse 8. He says this. He says, I know your deeds. We've heard that often in this, in this series, haven't we? He says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and you've not denied my name. Think about this with me for just a moment. 
But think about some of the, the great heartaches in life. You know, maybe a couple who has a, has a great amount of love to, to, share, to, to share with someone and they struggle with the pain of childlessness. Or, or think about maybe an athlete who's striving to qualify for the Olympics only to be disqualified on some technicality. Uh, consider the feelings of, of, of a person who's just rejected time and time and time again. They're passed over for a promotion at their job uh, just one time after another. Maybe think about the pain of those who are not hired because they are too qualified. I talked with a guy this week who, who is too qualified for jobs now. These are some of the closed doors of our lives, aren't they? But if we really believe that God is in control, if we really believe that, we will believe that He has the power to open and close doors and to open uh, opportunities for us, even when it seems like those doors might be closed. And as Christ speaks to the church at Philadelphia, He reminds them that He is the one who opens and closes doors. Whether these are doors for, for salvation or, or open doors of ministry or open doors of service, one thing is clear. It is God who places these opportunities in our path. In, in the Greek, the term here is for an open door really should be translated as a door having been opened. Jesus tells them they have a, an open door, that no one can close this door of opportunity. And, Jesus said, and so the idea is that they are already there. These doors are there. You just got to walk through them. How often do we find that to be the case in our lives where we, we think, well, God is just closing this door when really he's not closed the door. We just aren't walking through it. Um, I, I can tell you in my life, that's certainly been the case a number of times where I think, you know, for whatever reason, whatever excuse I want to come up with, I think, God, is, I don't think this is your plan anymore. And then it's, it's like, no, the door is still open. You just got to have the courage to walk through it. And then Jesus tells them, tells them this. He says that they have little strength. That's kind of an interesting thing for Jesus. He's, he's commending them. He, he's been very complimentary. In fact, if you go back and you read what he says to this church and then all the other churches, this, you'll find this is the only church that Jesus speaks to where he doesn't have a, a criticism or a critique for them. But he, he throws this in here that you have little strength. Apparently the church at Philadelphia wasn't a big church. They didn't have a lot of resources. They probably weren't uh, full of wealthy congregants who were giving large amounts of money to the church. They only had a little strength. But notice Jesus doesn't rebuke them for that. In fact, it's almost a, a compliment to them that you've been able to do so much with so little. You, you, are, you are a small church, but you're strong. He told the church in Ephesus that, hey, he knew their works. He told the church in Smyrna that he knew their worries. He tells the church in Pergamum that, that he knows their whereabouts, where, you know, where they live. He tells the church at Thyatira he knows about the woman that's in their midst. He tells the church at, at Sardis that he sees their withering. But he tells the church at Philadelphia, hey, I see your weakness. I see your weakness, but, but even though you're small, you don't have a lot of strength. You don't have a lot of resources. You're doing really good things. You're faithful with it. Look, there are no shortage of open doors for us as Christians to walk through. But there is a shortage of Christians that will go through those doors. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, He said, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The church at Philadelphia was, was small, but they were doing what they could for the Lord. They didn't allow their, their lack of resources to hold them back. The reality for us is that Glendale Christian Church, GCC, is not a small church. But it's not a large church either. We're, we're somewhere in the middle. We, we, have, we have some strength. We, we don't 
um, have the same uh, resources that, that smaller churches have, but we also don't have the same resources that larger churches have. That means that there are some things that we can't do, but there are a lot of things that we can do. God has opened a, a, a lot of doors for, for this church, and God is continuing to open doors for this church. And if you don't believe me, think about what's coming you know, just two miles down the road. That's a huge door. That's a huge opportunity for us to be able to walk through. But far too often we focus on the things that we can't do. And we use that as an excuse to do nothing. How many times have, have, have you seen this play out maybe in your work world or, or just in your, in your home life or, or even in, in your church life where you see that there's something that can be done but there's a reason. We use the word reason but really it's an excuse. We, there's an excuse for why it can't be done. And instead of doing something, we just do nothing. There's a story about a man who's out on a beach one day picking up sh- stranded starfish that had washed up on the beach and there's thousands of them along the shore of the beach. And someone comes along and he says, hey, why are you wasting your time? There, there are thousands of starfish on the beach. You can't throw them all back in. What are you doing? And it doesn't really matter what you're doing. And the man reached down and he picked up a starfish and he threw it back into the waves. And he said, well, it mattered to that one. Maybe you can't reach everyone. But there is someone that you can reach for Christ. But we often allow ourselves to think that somebody else will reach them. Can, can we do for everyone? Of course not. Of course we can't. But we can for one. I, I love the philosophy of do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. In fact, I, I, that's kind of become my, my mantra that, that I, I, I try to use in ministry. is that I, I want to do for one what I wish I could do for everyone. I might not be able to help everybody. But if I can help one, if I can do this for that one, then, then I'm going to do that. What, what would our ministries be like? What would our church be like? What would our home lives be like? What would our work world be like if we operated under that mantra? You know, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Look, I can't and you can't begin to be everybody for everything for everybody. It's just not physically possible. But instead of giving in and giving up because we can't get them all, what if we just focused on one? What if we just focused on one, just, just one person, or just one percent, one percent of the population that, that's about to move into our community, or mentor and disciple just one person, and invite them and reach out to them and, until you break through? We often think if we can't save the world, then, then why would we even try? But it makes all the difference to that one. Think about this. There was somebody in your life, and, I, and, I, and I'm assuming this because you're here today, there was somebody in your life who led you to Christ. It might have been a parent, a grandparent, a minister, a, a youth minister, a neighbor, a co-worker, whoever. But somebody, somewhere, led you to Christ. What, what would your life be like if that person had said, you know what, somebody else will do it. Somebody else will, will do it. What if, what, if some, what if we all took that attitude? And far too often, I think that's the attitude that we find in the church, is somebody else will do that. What if we did for one what we wish we could do for everyone? What if we did for somebody else what someone has done for us? I had that conversation with a young lady this week. She's uh, going into missionary work and and she's working with college kids. And, And the reason she wanted to do that is because it was in her college life where somebody really brought her in and discipled her and mentored her. Mentored her, and she said, "You know, I just want to do for for those kids what somebody did for me." 
man, what would, what would the, the world be like? What would church be like? What would everything else be like if we would just do for one what somebody else did for us? The church at Philadelphia, they had a little strength, but they did what they could. They were committed. They, they, they worked faithfully, and Jesus said, Hey, I know you've got a little strength, but you have kept my word, and you've not denied my name. And, and that's a big thing, especially in that day and age when other churches, many of them larger and more active, more resources, they were compromising with the world, just trying to, to, to satisfy Caesar. They were sacrificing to Caesar and saying, Caesar is Lord, just so that, that Caesar would leave them alone. But these Christians at Philadelphia, they stayed true to the Word of God. They didn't try to fit in and blend in with their surroundings. Instead, they were willing to be identified by the name of Jesus Christ. Think about that for just a moment. Think about the world that we live in and how many people who, who might come to Christ, might come to church, might, might be active in the church uh, with, with you if they simply knew you were a Christian. But far too often, people at our work, People wherever, they can't tell any difference between us and the rest of the world. And so they just stay home. They're just not involved. And and I'm not talking just about church attendance, okay? I'm talking about just being plugged into the body of Christ in general. But they don't because they can't tell a difference. When the world doesn't look any different from the church, it's not the world's problem. It's the church's problem. The church always should be countercultural. The church has always been countercultural. And it should continue to be that way today. When the world doesn't look any different from the church, it's not the church's problem. It's ours. And think about this. How easy is it to just hide your identity at work? When, when someone's telling a story that's, that's filled with some, some humor that's probably not appropriate, you just smile and say nothing. When, when the boss wants you to do a little extra work and, and you, you mutter out a few expletives. When, when a coworker of the, of the opposite sex is near you and you let them know that you're attracted to them, but you try not to be too obvious. The result is that those who work with you have no clue that you're a Christian because they see nothing different about our lives. We're just like them. But these Christians in Philadelphia, they had a faithful testimony. They followed the the Word of God. And the the passage is clear that these Christians didn't have it easy. Like this was just not, you know, know, a a utopia that they lived in and and everybody sang kumbaya around the campfire every night. No, these these guys had it difficult. Verse 9 tells us that they faced opposition. Jesus said, I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan who claim to be joke, excuse me, claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. The the church at Philadelphia faced opposition from the Jews, just like the church did in Smyrna. Some believe that these uh, that this church in, in Philadelphia, that they started out meeting in a Jewish synagogue, and then the Jews locked the doors on them. They, they locked them out, keeping them from meeting there. And that might be why Jesus refers to, to giving them an open door that, that no one can shut. The, the Jews, those were those who had he, adhered strictly to a code of, of rules and regulations. You know, think back to the Pharisees and the Gospels uh, to get an idea for, for who it was that might have been persecuting them. In in our day, in our culture, we don't have a lot of Jews who are attacking us. But we do have a whole lot of legalistic Christians who feel it's their God-given duty to make everyone live life just the way that they do. I believe in the truth of the Scriptures. And I believe in that when we have truth in the Scriptures, where we have that, we need unity. But when it comes to, to opinion and matters that aren't covered in Scripture, we need liberty. We need freedom. If there's no thus saith the Lord, there shouldn't be a thus saith me. All right? 
There, there are some that would have you to believe that if you go to the movies, you're sinning. Um, if you go dancing, I know that's kind of an old school thing, if, but you, you know, there are groups that thought you can't dance. My grandfather was a, a, a preacher for, for all of my life, and for many years before that, I never one time saw a deck of playing cards in their house, ever, because you couldn't play cards. If you played cards, it was a ticket straight to hell. Um, but there are things like that, that that we have in our heads that these things are are, are going to send us straight to hell. There are groups that think, you know, how, how long your skirt should be or how short your hair needs to be. Look, all of those things, God has given us liberty in Christ to decide. And so we don't need to attack other Christians over these issues. If, if there is a thus saith the Lord, if, there, if, it's, if it's a matter of faith and doctrine, then, then unity. But if it's not, opinion. That's um, kind of what Paul tells to, to the church at Rome. And, um, look, for some of you eating meat off of the, off the altars that have been uh, sacrificed, the meat that has been offered to false gods, that's going to be a problem for some of you. And if you're around brothers and sisters who that's a problem for, you shouldn't do it. But if it doesn't bother you and they're not around, go ahead and eat the meat. It's not a big deal because there, there's not a thus saith the Lord on that, right? Paul says it's an opinion. It's not going to send you to hell one way or the other. It's not going to get you into heaven one way or the other, all right? We've we got to get over all of these things. That if you don't agree with me on, on every opinion that I have, so what? You know, I have a, I have a friend who um, I went to high school with. And we disagree on just about every aspect of life possible. We don't agree on any religious issues. We don't agree on any political issues. Uh, we don't, I mean, there's very few things at all that we agree on. We agree that Springfield, Kentucky is one of the greatest towns in the, in the, in the state of Kentucky. And that's about it. That's really about it. Uh, but, I mean, we, we are on polar opposites of the spectrum. And yet we stay in communication through, through social media and, and we're, we're able to communicate. We're able to talk because we understand that you don't have to agree with me. I don't have to agree with her. She doesn't have to agree with me. And we can still get along. We can still uh, be cordial to each other. And, I, and man, that's so missing in our culture today. If you post something on Facebook and somebody doesn't like it, who cares, right? Somebody does because they'll let you know. Right? But, but we're just as bad, too. We, we do the same thing. Somebody posts something on Facebook, and we think, well, I don't like that. You know what? It costs you nothing to keep scrolling. It costs you nothing. All right? You don't have to type a response. And, man, if we could just get that in our head sometimes, that, that we don't have to argue with everybody about everything. We can live life just fine and not argue about everything with everybody because most of the time, you know how many people's opinions change through argument? None. The church at Philadelphia was faithful, and Jesus told them he's going to give them three things. The first one is this, that he'd give them recognition. That he would make the Jews admit that the church was loved by God. We don't know what all transpired in that church, but we remember the truth of Proverbs sixteen seven. He says this, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. Man, that's good stuff right there. That when a, man, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, even his enemies live at peace with him. Then God promises relief. Verse 10, he says, Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon you, the whole world, to test those who live on the earth. 
Now, there's a couple of different things about what this relief could be. It could be deliverance from a trial that the church faced there in the first couple of centuries. There were a lot of earthquakes that happened in Philadelphia. And so, um, excuse me, maybe this was short-term deliverance. Um, it might have had to do with the lifespan of the church. Of all the seven churches that, that, are, that we're, we've talked about here in Revelation, the church at Philadelphia lasted the longest. The, the church had such an impact in Philadelphia that, that long after the rest of Asia had fallen to, to Muslims, Philadelphia remained a free Christian city. Uh, amidst, uh, amidst a sea of pagan people, Philadelphia was the last stronghold of Asian Christianity. It stood firm throughout the, the Muslim invasion until the city fell to the Turks in, in 1392. But that was hundreds of years after most of all these other cities had collapsed. It's one of only two cities in this list of seven that still remain today. And you can see ruins that date back to when this letter was written alongside modern-day apartment buildings. But, but the most likely interpretation of this, and I, and I think this, and I think it's consistent with other passages of Scripture, is that this trial that's coming upon the whole world is the judgment of God. What it, and so what's God's promise? That he will keep the church from the hour. These Christians will not go through this trial or this judgment from God that's upon the rest of the world. Because they have been faithful, God promises recognition and relief for them. They're not going to face this same judgment that everybody else is going to face. And then the last thing is reward. Look at verse 11. He says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. Jesus says faithful Christians will be like pillars in his temple. When when earthquakes would hit the city of Philadelphia, often the only thing that was left standing were these pillars of, of these different temples. And Jesus says that you're going to be like that. So he's promising security to these faithful believers. But even more than this, in the first century, when a prominent citizen did something noteworthy and it was worth memorializing, they they would inscribe it on a pillar in one of their temples. And so Jesus is saying this. He said, I'm going to take note of what you've done. I am am seeing this. You're going to be uh, like one of these faithful pillars. Jesus said in, in Mark, if anyone gives you a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I assure you that that person will be rewarded. Jesus assures us that he will reward us for our faithful service. So let me ask a question. Just something to think about. Why aren't we more active in our service to the Lord? And, and, and I don't mean to, to, to downplay church attendance, okay? But church attendance and church attendance alone is not service to the Lord. Okay? It's not if you come every Sunday and you show up and you get your check mark and as I sat in the pew and I and I stayed awake, hey, that's an extra check mark, right? If you didn't stay awake, then you get an X that day. Doesn't count. That's not service alone. Why aren't we more active in serving the Lord? If, if Jesus says, Look, if you're faithful to serve, I will reward you. Why aren't we more active in our service? Why aren't we more dedicated to it? Could it be that we don't really believe that our God is a generous worker or a generous rewarder? Could it be that we don't believe that God is actually generous in his reward, that he's actually true to his promises? We've got to take it on faith. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that, that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So if, if 
if we believe that, and we all we would all say, well, yeah, nobody nobody in this room is going to say, well, I don't think God's generous, or I think you know nobody's going to say that, right? That's that's not ever the the right thing to say in a church setting. So we would never we would never agree with that statement. But our actions often tell a different story. Our actions speak to what we actually believe. I told you about the the girl I went to high school with and how we are on polar opposites of the spectrum. We we don't agree on anything, but I'm tell you this: I know what she believes because I see her action. I see all the things that she, she organizes for people in her community that, that, that brings people together. And, and look, I don't have to agree with them, but I know what they believe because I see what they act on. If we really believe the things that we believe about God, why don't we act on it? And why don't we share that with other people? I mean, we have the greatest news in all the world. We have the greatest hope of all the world. Why would we hold that into ourselves if we believe that God is generous and He's a rewarder of those who seek Him and share Him with others? Why would we hold that in? Look, if I said, I'll give you $500. If I give you $500 today, if you go home and you call somebody that you know that's not a Christian and you share the gospel with them today, most of us would probably be getting out our phones and like, you don't even have to wait till I get home. Like, I'll dial it right now, Right? But if I said, hey, I'll give you $500 if you, or, but if I, let me rephrase it. If I said, if you call an unsaved person, someone that you, don't, that you know is not a Christian, and you share the gospel with them today, God will reward you. We'd probably never get our phone out of our pocket. Why? Maybe it's because we don't really believe God is faithful to reward us. Something to think about. Notice one last thing about our reward. Jesus says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. I will also write on him my new name. To those Christians who are, who are not ashamed to identify with Jesus, Jesus is not ashamed to identify with them. He places his seal, his stamp, his mark of identification on them so that everyone will see that we belong to Jesus. It would be real easy today for us to say, for us to make all kinds of excuses. And, and let's be honest, that's what they really are for the most part. They're excuses. I could stand up here and say, hey, I don't have a lot of gifts. I'm not a real good preacher. I don't need any amens on that. I'm not a good preacher. I'm not real good at sharing the gospel. Our church isn't as big as others. There's just, we can't do it. We can't do whatever. But let's take a lesson from the church at Philadelphia. Even though we don't have it all. When we don't. When we use the resources that God has given to us, He is pleased. And He's faithful to reward those who serve Him. So today, let's make a commitment that we will look for the open doors that God has opened, that He's given us. And instead of, instead of walking by them or, or coming up with a reason to close them, we will have the courage and the wisdom to walk through those doors, even if we don't know what lies on the other side. Look, we might not know. In fact, I would say most times we probably don't know. But the only way that we ever grow in our faith is to step in our faith. That's the only way. That's the only way we ever grow in our faith is to exercise our faith, to step out in our faith, to step out of a comfort zone. And so let's, let's make a commitment to look for those open doors and to walk through them so that we will use what God has given us faithfully for His glory so that the kingdom of heaven might be known in all lands of the world, for His glory. Because we love people, right? And we love Jesus. And we want to lead people to love and follow Jesus. Every day, right? Let me pray for us.